homeschool expert is here to equip you to homeschool confidently with help from the experts. You can do this, and we are here to help. Visit homeschoolexpert.com for video and print resources. Helping you homeschool confidently is our host, Ann Crossman, and her guest expert for today's special broadcast. Hi, friend, and welcome to Homeschool Expert. Of all the guest experts we've had on this podcast, Dr. Susan Wise Bauer's previous episode on The Well-Trained Mind is hands down a fan favorite. So I'm grateful to have her back with us today to talk about her work, the story of the world, and her history of series. Susan has multiple advanced degrees from Westminster College and College of William and Mary. She has published seven books. Some of the most well-known are The Well-Trained Mind, which we got to talk about last time, Rethinking School, How to Take Charge of Your Child's education, and of course, the History of the World series. She is also the contributing editor of Comment Magazine and is a member of the faculty at the College of William and Mary and is editor-in-chief of the Well-Trained Mind Press. So the story of your world, Susan, honestly, is pretty incredible. I am so grateful to have you back on Homeschool Expert to share more of it with us. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be back. I should point out also, Anne, that I'm, I've done seven books with Norton. Uh, if you were going to count in the books that I have done for my own press, which is more of our curricula, yes. uh, the, the story of the world and the writing with ease series and first language lessons and all of those, then it's it's a, a few more than seven. What is your total? Yeah, that's actually fun. What, you what know, are, I think it's around 22 maybe. Oh my goodness. Well done. Um, but, but, but of course a curricula is different than a book. It's a, it's a very different process. It's a very different feel. It's a very different production. Um, yeah, but it's no less a book than in terms of work. Than, oh no, it certainly takes quite, just, just as many man hours, woman yeah. hours. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Well, it's funny because over the past 20 years, whenever I talk with parents about history resources, your name invariably comes up like consistently more than any other resource. It's it's Susan Weisbauer or the story of the world. So I'm really looking forward to diving more into the story behind that resource today. Yeah. Um, but before we go there, I know you and I have gotten to have some conversations on the side before, but I want to welcome our friend into that. How did you end up in the homeschooling world? And what's sort of your story with homeschooling before we start on all that great history stuff? Yeah. So I ended up in the homeschooling world, um, not as sort of a doctrinaire homeschooling is the best thing for my family, but because my mother didn't know what else to do with us. <laughs> um, yeah. My my uh, my older brother and um, my younger sister and I were all here on the farm in the early 1970s. And my mother, who was a wonderful educator, she taught uh, taught both private and public school in five different states and in two foreign countries before she had kids had decided that she was going to teach us how to read before we went to school to make sure that we were well set. Mm -hmm. And she did such a good job teaching us how to read that when first my brother, and then I went to school and we ruined it for my younger sister. She never even got a chance. <laughs> we were so far ahead of the other kids that we were bored and we were problem kids. And my brother in particular being a boy, created disturbances and used to read ahead of the teacher and put his hand up and say, actually, that's not what the book says. And just, you know, generally we made ourselves obnoxious. And my mother kept getting called in for parent teacher conferences. And, you know, she was a public school educator. She had no idea what was going wrong here. Um, so she took us to the, again, this is 1972. She took us to the local mental health clinic to find out yeah. what was wrong with us. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And the psychiatrist there said, there's nothing wrong with them. They're just reading on an eighth grade level and they're bored out of their skulls. And he said mm -hmm. this in 1972, 
you have a, you have an educator's degree, you have a teaching degree. Why don't you pull them out of school and teach them yourself? Wow. That's an innovative. Yeah. Yeah. So it was sort of an outside voice speaking this option that she had never thought of. I mean, she had, it had never occurred to her. My mother um, was the only member of her family to go to, actually, I think she was the only member of her high school class to go to college. Hmm. Um, You know, her, her, her foster parents only finished eighth grade. She was not from an educational background and she had worked really hard to become a teacher and she believed in education and it had never occurred to her that this was something you could do at home. But there we were creating a problem. <laughs> so she um, she she named herself a school and she made up letterhead and she wrote away for curricula. And we had the farm. We live on this farm. It's Peace Hill Farm. So family farm. And so she was, you know, Peace Hill Academy. And, um, you know, my first, my brother's first day of second grade, my first day of kindergarten, we sat in our little desks in our attic and said the Pledge of Allegiance and pulled out our workbooks. And as time went on, she figured out how homeschooling was different from a classroom education. Mm -hmm. But for her, it was really a matter of necessity, not a matter of conviction. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that's how I got involved in it, but homeschooling was, I mean, it was a great option for me. Um, I all me and my siblings, we really flourished under it. And when I started dating my now husband, you know, I said to him, I think I'd like to homeschool our kids because, you know, well, after not when we started dating, (laughs) and it was clear that it was a permanent relationship. I think I'd like to homeschool our kids. And he had gone to public school in Baltimore where he was perpetually in fear of getting beat up if he went to the bathroom. Um, Mm. So he was very, he was very open to this idea. So I moved into the second generation homeschooling my own kids who are now 30, 28, 25 and 21. Wow. Well done. Yeah. So, and I, and you mentioned when your mom decided to homeschool, you, it was more of necessity than conviction. I really yeah. like that point because I think there are probably more homeschoolers doing that now than, than we may even give them credit, especially in light of what's happened with COVID or, mm-hmm. you know, people's job changes now and, and the economy being in flux and folks moving around to to get work. Um, yeah, absolutely. yeah, I think a lot of parents are saying I never would have picked this. <laughs> oh my goodness. And we have heard from so many parents over the last two years and they always start out that way. I never thought of myself as a homeschooler because they identify homeschooling sometimes with a particular cultural and political set of stances, yep. which is not them. And we say, that's why we're here. We just want to make sure that you can educate your kid in a way that makes sense for your family, whether that's homeschooling, private school, public school, some combination, charter school, online school. Let us help you figure out what's going to work for your family. Yes. And I love that about your work because every child is unique and not every way of not every child should be homeschooled in the most traditional definition of that word. It doesn't work for everybody. No, Um, it doesn't. And and I have had I I have said this often. now that I'm on the other side of homeschooling, it's not even right for every child in the same family. I mean, of my children, one of them would have been much better in school. Had I been able to think that through, um, to be able to think more clearly about this child is better at home, but this child would be better in school. Um, This is one of my regrets that I did not recognize that earlier, but now it's one of the things I share with you know, younger mothers is Mm. look at each kid 
<laughs> yeah, they are different. We have one who every year we evaluate and say, is this year this child goes to school? Not because anything is wrong, but because I think the school setting would challenge that child in a different mm-hmm. way. And so, Absolutely. yeah, love what you're saying. I know it's not always a welcome thing, what we're saying in the homeschool community, but yeah, homeschooling is great. It's just not the be all end all of everything. Well, Anne, I don't think we have a homeschool community anymore. I think we have oh, multiple yeah, hit overlapping homeschool yes. communities, but that's healthy. Yes. That's as it should be. Yeah. And, and the good thing of it being, I would say varied, um, and rather than some people see it as splintered, but it's like, no, no, it's really diverse. We have so many pa- families coming from so many different kinds of backgrounds, so many definitions of what a family is. You know, we've got kids living with grandparents and they're trying to homeschool the kids, all kinds of stuff um, that, that, yeah, we need to start thinking about it differently and not make so many assumptions about what color somebody painted their kitchen. Our mm-hmm. kitchens do not all have to match. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nor do our voter cards or, you know, or license plates. None of that. It's just that, yeah, um, let's find a way to love and teach our kids, which is why we're here. When I, I, I do a workshop about what is classical education, and I outline mm-hmm. what I think are the basic principles of classical education, and I say these are like walls and a foundation and a roof. Mm-hmm. Within all houses have to have four walls, a foundation and a roof. But within that, what seems like a stringent guideline, there's so much variation, not just in how those parts are put together, but the life that takes place within them. That's Mm -hmm. how I like to think of of education. That's a good metaphor. Okay. Well, one of the things I invited you here to talk about today, Susan, was some of the books, uh, two series in particular that you've written. And I would love your help, first of all, understanding the differences between them. So you've got these two history series out, The Story of the World, which I just referenced a moment ago in four volumes that loads of homeschool families uh, have used for decades. And then you have this History of series, Mm -hmm. which covers ancient world, medieval world, and Renaissance in three volumes. So for somebody who maybe is new to discovering your work, can you help me understand, help them understand what's the difference between the two and how would they decide which one to start with or or purchase? Sure. So it's primarily a difference of age appropriateness and detail. So -hmm. the story of the world series is written for elementary through eighth grade. Mm -hmm. It is a narrative Uh, world history series covering the whole world. And when I say narrative, I mean, I try to keep a story thread going through the whole thing, Mm -hmm. which introduces children to the framework of world history. It is not intended to be the end of the study of history. It's intended to be the beginning. It's intended to give students hooks to hang um, other knowledge on. So Mm -hmm. it goes chronologically Um, in order to provide a framework that other history learning can build on. One of my frustrations when my mother and I were first uh, working on The Well-Trained Mind, which was our guide to K through 12 classical education, was that I couldn't find a history book for kids that established the framework of history. And I I think that most people who did history in the classroom in sort of a quote unquote traditional way came out with a few dates in mind, like 1776, mm-hmm. um, maybe 1865, if you live in the South, mm-hmm. you know, 1914 to 1918. But apart from that, uh, 1939 to 1945, apart from that, there are just a whole bunch of events that float around in your brain that you can't really put into order because you encountered them out of order. You did an American history class. You did uh, maybe a world history class. You did another kind of history class. Nobody ever walked you 
through the chronological step-by-step, here's what happened in the past. And that has got to be the starting place of how we understand history. It's not the end of it, but it has to be the starting place so that we have this, I'm going to use the word framework again, into which we can put other random facts that we learn in other interesting places. So I was frustrated that I couldn't find anything like that, that I thought really made sense. There were some history encyclopedias, which went chronologically, but the problem with an encyclopedia is it doesn't really grab you because it doesn't tell a story. Right. So I wanted to combine the chronological aspect of an encyclopedia, a history encyclopedia with a story that would grab kids' attentions. So, uh, so the story of the world was my filling in something I could not find anywhere else. It was an attempt to make history intelligible for children, to get them engaged and interested in it, but also to sort of put this framework into place so that they could take that and as they moved on into high school, have something that they could plug other pieces of information into in a yes. way that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it is really fun too, in the history of series, I just finished your first book of that with my son, mm. uh, which I'll talk about in a little bit, but um, you had divided the the histories into three categories of Middle East, Europe, and Far East. Okay. Yes. And if we look at the, those three histories and the, there's a moment in the book when Far East and Middle East meet each other. Mm-hmm. supposedly for like the first time their histories really begin to rub up against each other. And it's kind of exciting because whereas before it was all disconnected now knowing what's happening in China, of course, that has influence on what's happening yeah. in yeah. Russia. And of well, course that has influence on, and it makes so much more sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in the history of series. So let me just take a sort of a little bit of a side route and tell you how I got to that. The story of the world Um, So my longtime publisher was W.W. Norton. And when I first started working on the Story of the World project, I asked them if they would be interested in publishing it. And my editor there said, we don't really do kids books, but (laughs) what if you form your own publishing company and then we become your distributor? And this is one of the classic blunders. I was like, oh, publishing company. I can do that. Yeah. So we formed Well Trade Mind Press to publish the Story of the World. And from there, of course, we've gone on in many other directions, but originally it was just to get the story of the world published so that Norton could distribute it because then they could make sure it was on Amazon and through Barnes and Noble and they distribute to Canada and internationally. Yep. So my editor at Norton uh, said, yeah, I've been looking at the sales for the story of the world. They're really good. And I said, why? Yes, they are. And he said, <laughs> so I went down to the mailroom and I, I snagged a copy and I've been reading it. It's really good. And I said, why, thank you. And he said, do you think you could do it for grownups? And I mm-hmm. said, do like a, a story of the world for grownups. He said, yeah, nobody's done that for a long, long time. How long do you think it would take you to write a history of the world for grownups? And I said, a history of the whole world for grownups. He said, yeah, do you think you could do it in, in eight years? And I said, I don't know. Let me give it a try. So we came up with this idea that I was going to write a history of the world for grownups, which was going to do kind of the same thing in that I really wanted to establish a chronological framework that made sense for grownups, you know, who could read through and be like, oh, that's when Constantinople fell and that's why it's important. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, so I so my original plan with the history of the world series was to sort of reproduce what I did in the story of the world, but to do it 
for adult readers. But of course, no writing project actually works that way. Um, <laughs> and so it became something, something, I mean, it, it's still, it is still a chronological history of the world but became a different thing. And originally it was going to be a four volume, like the story of the world. I did the first three volumes and then I said, okay, we need to stop for a minute. Let me think about this because I cannot continue to write the history of modern times in the same way because the documentation is so overwhelming. There is so much to sort through. So the history of the world series actually will conclude with a history of the modern world in two volumes. And yeah, one will be from the fall of Constantinople, which is where the history of the Renaissance world ended up through the invention of the steam engine, which is actually the shift for into real modernity as we think of it. And then the second will be from the invention of the steam engine up until probably the, maybe the 2010s, but I'm, I'm not quite sure where I'm going to end yet. It's well, I, you know, you can, you can, you can talk about things that are happening in the last couple of years. And then two years later, you sound like an idiot. So you have to be really careful yes. about that. Yeah. Yeah. So eventually that will be a five volume series, um, which I hope will cover up until the modern age. Uh, so it, it just, it's just for, a, it's for a different readership. Well, that's helpful to know because I have heard of story of the world being used as a curriculum, but for some reason, when I was looking around on audible and came across history of, I really liked John Lee as a reader. He's one of my favorites. And so oh, I thought, well, I'll, I'll go with this one. Uh, and I had just finished two other books that ironically enough, he had read that have nothing to do with you or studying history, but it's just his voice is so great. Um, so my son and I started listening to the first in your history of series. We're getting ready for a big trip and we're trying to prep for it. And so it's been a core part of our preparation. And I have to say from the parenting perspective, even though you're saying you wrote it for adults, you wrote it with so much discretion and, and a <laughs> sense of humor and the latter one I'll come back to, but discretion for me is so important with this subject because as all of us know, history is so full of hurt and heartache. Yeah. It's this constant story of the conqueror and the conquered and, you know, life is nasty, British short. And so yes. where your carefulness comes in is not in hiding the mature parts of history, but clothing them in a vocabulary that will not only be accessible to mature listeners, but something that the younger listeners either don't get at all or are just able to sit in the same room. So like there was this Doesn't one damage them. <laughs> yes. There was this one line in particular. I just, I had to pause and I just started giggling when I listened to it. Um, that stuck out from the history of the ancient world when you wrote, um, and I don't know if this is John Lee's way of pronouncing it or the proper way. So correct me, but Solon was mm -hmm. notorious for his love affairs and was not immune to good looking young men. Plutarch replies primly. And then you keep going. And the way you handled that moment really bolstered my confidence in listening to the story with even my younger kids, because you weren't hiding the story, but you presented it in a way that was age appropriate. And so you've talked a little bit about the age of your listeners with yeah. your series. Is there anything more you would want to add on that to help guide people who are trying to decide between the two about distinctions with them? Well, I mean, I think that, I think that any high school student ought to be able to handle what's in the history of the world series. Mm -hmm. I certainly wouldn't use it with under, under ninth grade mm -hmm. um, because there's, it's not only, I mean, the sex, of course, sex is always an issue with ancient history in particular. Well, actually medieval is even worse now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> it's everywhere. Yeah. yeah. It's everywhere. But the violence also is mm -hmm. very disturbing. 
Um, you know, within the history of the ancient world, I really struggled with how to depict, you know, the Assyrians impaling prisoners and making towers out of living. I mean, just, there's yes. just so much horrible stuff. So it's definitely written for ninth grade and up. And I think if a parent is going to use it with ninth grade and up, that parents should be aware that, you know, that the violence is there. It's not graphic, but it's there. The sex is there. It's not graphic, but it's there. Part of what I, my strategy was I used the language of the people of the time, not our language. Mm -hmm. So it is a little, um, I don't think safer is the right word. It's a little bit more filtered because when you get, you know, a comment like the one that you read, um, or there's also, um, there's an extended, there's an extended, um, exploration of why the Greeks thought about homosexuality the way that they did, which does actually make reference to actual physical acts. I used the language of the original sources mm -hmm. and left it to the reader to interpret those into, you know, more modern graphic anatomical terms. Right. And I, which, I think, which is like, you're not using it to celebrate anything or it's not like we've, you know, we talk a lot about sex cells for advertising purposes, just in general. Mm -hmm. And you're not doing that though. You're representing what it is as it was stated in the original piece. And that's where it was so great. Well, one of my, one of my constant challenges when I write history is to try to think, think myself back into, which you never can actually do, but you can try think myself back into the eyes and ears and mind of the person who was recording it at that time without mm -hmm. overlaying our own modern sensibilities over top of it. So that's my ongoing challenge. That is an ongoing challenge. And I was going to chat about this later, but we can even jump into it now because it was, there was this funny part, um, again, with your sense of humor, I was talking about <laughs> where you're, I'm listening to ancient history again with John Lee and out of nowhere, you just start dropping witty lines, uh, for instance, about the rape of the Sabine women in Rome. Oh, and yes. I know that's, that seems like, Anne. how could you possibly say those words in the same sentence, but just hang with me if you're still listening, right. Where you quoted Plutarch on how the women were won over, um, when these new Roman men with their honeyed words and tender affections, you know, and, and then you just kind of add to this, to the side, um, makes me wonder how the women would have accounted for the history differently if they had been right. asked a female historian. I was like, really? Yes. Thank you. That, that just helps yes. me sit with the history a little bit better. I yeah. remember who wrote it down and what their goals were and, oh, it's, it, it must be so challenging. So how do you balance telling history as it was experienced with how we experience it now, knowing that the lens we're using is mm. obviously hundreds, thousands of years into the future and, and very different. Yeah. Well, with particularly with ancient history, this is a challenge because we have so few sources. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've got maybe we have maybe four or five Roman historians who are considered, quote unquote, accurate Plutarch being one of them. So when you are constructing and, and those that's as close as we get to a primary source. So for your readers who may not be aware, a primary source is an account written by somebody who lived at the time of the events being recorded. Mm -hmm. And a secondary source is someone who uses a primary source to retell a story. And it is a very frustrating thing in many cases for a historian like me to pull apart a primary source and a secondary source yes. and to figure out who said what and why. So when I'm dealing with Plutarch, I'm dealing with 
a primary source, he's just, I mean, he's he's not actually writing at the same time as the rape of the Sabine women. He's repeating a story that he's heard, but he's as close as we're going to get. But he wasn't there and he wasn't watching. So mm-hmm. I feel like it's my responsibility as a historian to say, eh, he wasn't there and he didn't interview the Sabine women. Oh, and he wasn't raped. So that probably yes, has exactly. a different perspective to it also. Yeah. 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 So that is my way of distinguishing a primary source who was present and watching from a quote unquote primary source, which is as close to we have at the, of a, an eyewitness, but pointing out that this is not 100% trustworthy. And, you know, this is, this is not just an ancient history problem. This is something I'm dealing with continually now as I'm working on the more modern histories. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember who said that history is always written by the conquerors, but it is, Yes, yes. you know, if you, if you read a Chinese account of a battle in Vietnam and a Vietnamese account of a battle in Vietnam, Vietnam, it is my responsibility as a historian to give you the reader some idea of which one of these accounts is more likely to record what actually happened. Mm-hmm. And this is something, by the way, that doesn't come up at all in the story of the world, because that is not something that you task elementary and middle school students with. But it Mm, is something that's very important for high school and college students to think about that. Yeah. So step into that one a bit more, because that's really helpful um, in the conversation about what to teach our children about history and what not to teach and protecting innocence and all those really important principles. Um, How can you challenge parents then to be thinking about why they perhaps should look at something like the history of the World Series as opposed to the story of the world as their children age instead of saying, oh, well, story of the world is sufficient. It's like, well, but the native Americans actually had a different perspective of that guy with the boat that right, <laughs> on the right. sand. So how, how do you talk to parents about that part? Well, I encourage parents, uh, oh, this is, and this is such a charged topic. You know, we have, we currently have so many, uh, I don't mean to go too far afield, but we have so many bills in so many different state legislatures trying to control mm-hmm. how history is presented to children. Yes. And I really want to say to parents, okay, let's, let's, let's pull a couple of things apart. Should you protect your elementary student? Absolutely. You should protect your elementary student. Should you protect your middle grade student? Well, from some things, but possibly not from others. Should you protect your high school student? Actually, no. You should be talking to your high school student, not protecting your high school student. Um, and what I'm seeing, unfortunately, from a lot of parents is this sort of this protection ethos that goes, that doesn't really change from first grade through 12th grade. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, which is something that I feel like is behind a lot of the college at home movements, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I know that there can be, I know that there can also be economic reasons why you want to do college at home. Um, but there's this sense of, okay, I've got to keep protecting, keep protecting, keep protecting. Actually, at some point you have to stop, you know, you You have to work yourself out of a job. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. That is your, and I I don't want to like scare your listeners to death, but as my kids are now age 21 through 30, my husband and I say this to each other occasionally, nobody told us that this was going to be harder than keeping them from (laughs) killing themselves when they were babies. Yeah. 
because, yeah. but it is. So, so much of parenting young adults is standing back and shutting your mouth mm-hmm. and praying desperately and clenching your teeth and hoping that they figure it out mm. in the knowledge that by the time they get, sorry, people, by the time they get to 15 or 16, you've got really limited influence. And by the time they're 20, <laughs> you are standing by. That's your or job. You have, you have influence and almost no authority by that point. Influence. But that's a very, that's a very good way to put it in. Yeah. That's a good distinction to make. Um, but in terms of the presentation of history, I just see so much fear from parents mm, about, yeah. you know, somehow my kid is going to get the wrong idea. And I really want to, I really want to say to them, I have news for you. They're going to get the wrong idea. It's your job to let them listen to all of the ideas and talk to them about it so that yes. they can start to sort out what actually makes sense. Yeah. No, we're, we're teaching them to be pathfinders, right? How do you find your way? Um, what are the questions that are asked? How do you, you know, like, that's one of the reasons why I love that you have so many primary sources right. um, in the work, because it's, it's just kind of mind boggling. If I just pause for a second to think I am listening to the exact words that somebody wrote and yeah. he lived at a time before, you know, like there's, or even toilets, like he's just, he's <laughs> running water, like candles hadn't even been invented yet. Candles were going to be like, it's just, he's so far back there. Um, and, and yet here's his voice saying what, what it was like for him. And so that's powerful when you have those sources, but then in light of that, with the primary sources, I also appreciate your sensitivity to how you reference the Bible as a historic document in your work. Yeah. And I have to think, I have to think that's really got to be challenging at times. It's like a bit of a tightrope you're walking between respecting the source in a way that makes it approachable to listeners from any background, but at the same time, presenting it in a way that followers of that faith can take what you've written and potentially use it as a springboard to launch deeper if they so choose. And anytime somebody is writing history, you know, religion's going to be involved somewhere. So what's your goal as you think about how to handle religion when you're talking about history? (laughs) My goal is to be scorned by believers on all sides. (laughs) Um, yeah, good. I'm, I'm only half joking. I, used I to know teach, when I was, when I was full-time teaching at William and Mary, I taught a class called the Bible is literature, which was, you know, it, it was, it was a class that was instituted by William and Mary, which is a public university. It's a Virginia state university because the, the medieval and Renaissance faculty were like, we can't teach paradise lost anymore because nobody gets any of the references. So yes. They put in this Bible's literature class and I have a seminary degree. So I was like, I can teach that. And I had so class evaluations at the end of the year. I had, you know, like, you know, 60% of them were like, class was fine. And then I had 20% that would said, this professor is a liberal agnostic feminist who's trying to destroy my faith. And I cannot believe that you're allowing her to teach this class. And then I would have 20% that said, this professor is a religious fundamentalist trying to convert me to Christianity. And I cannot believe that you're allowing her to teach that class. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this became a model for me. I'm like, okay, I think I'm probably doing it right. <laughs> You've perfected the art of compromise. What is it they say about compromise? If everyone must be equally unhappy, it's like, great, yeah. you did it. Yes, you, you did it. So when I was, when I was working on the story uh, with, with the history, actually, let me go to the history world. And then I'll go back to the story of the world. I know with the history of the world, this really hit me in terms of when I got up to the accounts of the flood, because when you're doing ancient history, 
you have to use religious documents because that's what we have. Mm -hmm. Everything that was written in Indian, Arabic, Chinese, European, I mean, Mediterranean, all of the documents are religious. You, you, you can't do history without using them. Well, they've only educated people for the most yeah. part were the priests, right? Or anyone yeah, in the yes. temples. Well, and there was no other reason to write down what happened unless there was a religious reason. So mm-hmm. you have to use those as sources. So I used them as sources and I used equally the Bible and Chinese divination texts. And I used, I used everything from every culture and every faith that I could in order to try to piece together what might have actually happened. And I was very careful to say, this is extrapolation. I think this is what happened. So I got completely blasted by a, one set of people who said, this author, I think they also went back and looked up my, my degrees and realized that I had gone to Christian schools at some point in my mm-hmm. development, said, clearly, she is treating these religious documents and they would only talk about the Christian documents, by the way, right. although I use documents from every religious tradition, they would that you quote Confucius and Buddha is irrelevant I, right now. Just you talked yeah, about Jesus. So, okay. Didn't pay any attention to that. They just looked at my uses of the old Testament in particular and said, this is not a trustworthy historian because she used religious documents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can go look at the reviews on Amazon and you can see it. Then from the other side, there was a pretty well-organized campaign led by some big names in Christian home education that said, she's just treating the Bible like a historical document as if it weren't inspired. Do not ever read anything that this woman ever wrote. So, Mm. you know, it was the same, it was the same division. It was the same and pretty much the same breakdown that I had experienced when teaching the Bible as literature at William & Mary. So you know, eventually I stopped reading reviews. Yeah, good. Um, <laughs> probably later than I should have. But I had the same experience with the story of the world because I really did pursue the same strategy. I tell stories from the Quran. I tell stories from the Old Testament. I tell stories from Chinese traditions. And whenever we tell them in the story of the world, we didn't do this in the very first printing and we soon realized we needed to. I would say, here is a story from X tradition. And then I would retell the story. We figured out very early on that most parents could not figure out the difference between here is a story from and here is what I believe. So in later printings of the story of the world, whenever I said, here is a story from X religious tradition, we then indented it and put some like typographical elements to separate it off from the text to make Mm -hmm. clear that this is not what we are saying as part of the history. This is a story that has been um, preserved from the past that tells us something about the past. Mm -hmm. So there was a certain... um, inability of the readers to discern the difference between a historical narrative and a here is a story from the past that we had to begin to work around um but I, but i had the same experience with the story of the world i mean here again you can go look at the reviews on amazon particularly actually interestingly um some very conservative christians jumped all over the the story of the world because I didn't actually quote the Bible when I told the story of Abraham. I used 
what I knew of the history of the time to retell it. And they found that very offensive. In the history of the medieval world, I, I retell a very early account of Muhammad ordering an attack on a caravan, which impelled an, um, a Muslim homeschooling group to boycott us because mm. they felt very strongly that no, Muhammad would never have um, have, have uh, recommended violence of any kind. And that got to be a very hot and heavy thing. For both of them, I had to say the same thing. I mean, I'm I'm not a Muslim. I'm a Christian. But for both of them, I had to say the same thing, which is, guys, that is not what the text says. I am telling you what the text says. You can go and look at the text, argue with the text. Don't argue with me about it. Yes. So I wrote it, but I didn't really write it. It was there before I wrote it. So, so yeah. yeah, yeah. It would yeah. be so fun to have you um, on a podcast sometime with Julie Bogert, because she and I were just talking last week about critical thinking, and that's going to mm-hmm. be an, an upcoming podcast here too. But uh, this comes back to my mind as, as you're talking about this, because she was emphasizing how important it is as parents and teachers of our kids to instill in them the value of hearing somebody else's perspective and yeah. gleaning something of value from that perspective, even if we still disagree with them. And it sounds like that muscle is not fully developed. If we're looking at your history work saying, uh, how dare you quote Confucius? Or it's like, well, we're just, we're trying to hear everybody's story so that we can put it together. Well, there's an incredibly defensive mechanism that kicks in. So, you know, just to compare the reactions from my stories from the Old Testament, my stories from the Quran, um, this the, this Muslim homeschooling group was very offended by the fact that I quoted the part of the Quran where Muhammad says, attack the caravan. And I appreciate their sensitivity there, you know, that they do not want to be associated with violence. Mm. But my Christian audience was equally offended by the fact that when I told the story of Abraham, I said he started off as Abram and he was a worshiper of the moon God because mm-hmm. his name and his wife's name and his father-in-law's name, all of their names referenced the moon God. And he hadn't heard from Yahweh yet. So he started out as a worshiper of the moon God. Yep. Same kind of reaction, same sort of defensive. No, Abraham was a hero of the faith. There's no way he ever worshiped the moon God. Well, yes, he actually did. So there's this fear of history, this fear of looking at what actually happened. This this sense that we can't say this happened. It wasn't great, but here's where we are now. This sense that if something that we disagreed with happened in the past, we can't escape from it or we can't reframe it or we can't move beyond it, which is. This ahistorical way of thinking, ahistorical is when you take something from the past and you treat it as though it is an existing truth that can never be changed. Mm. To be a historian means that you believe there is change and there is new understanding that comes and there is progress forward. So these reactions to me are very ahistorical. They are against the purpose of history. Abraham worshiped the moon God before God spoke to him in the Old Testament. Well, and I'm glad you brought the fear point too, because I think if we're honest with ourselves, 
um, and again, this is what Julie and I were talking about the other day, but there, we are afraid to sit down to something and, and say, what's going to be in here and what's my reaction going to be to it. And is that scary? Um, and I can feel myself getting scared before I read this political article because my pulse is raising and my, you know, whatever, like sweating, uh, is this person going to say something that offends me? Am I going to be able to beat their arguments down? Um, and so when you talk about that in terms of history, I look back at, um, whether it's, you know, biblical, religious, faith-filled, or just political, how we're looking at historical figures, there's this fear that we're going to find out that they were human. We're all flawed. And if we were expecting a hero to not be flawed, we're all going to be disappointed. And yeah, I feel like that's what you're running up against sometimes. Well, yeah, I mean, so there, there, there are two different kinds of inclusions of that fear. One is the fear that your heroes are going to get busted for having clay feet. Mm. And that one, you just got to get over, (laughs) you know, um, everybody's got clay something. Yes. Um, and it doesn't invalidate what you have learned from them. If you find out that there's another part of their life that didn't line up to that. But then the second, and what I feel like is more, particularly maybe for homeschoolers, the more, um, pernicious, a manifestation of this is essentially lack of faith in God. You're like, oh no, oh no, no, everything in the past that God did has to look perfect to me and I have to be able to explain it. Otherwise, I cannot continue to be a Christian mm, because God is clearly God. not in control. Right. Yeah. right. yeah. And that's a that is a faith issue that um you know, I, I came out of a very fundamentalist background, fundamentalist, charismatic background where fear that somehow it was all going to spin out of control was a huge part of my upbringing. And, you know, like a lot of, of kids who grew up in that world, um, I've been pushing back against it ever since. And you, you got to believe that yeah, God can probably figure it out. <laughs> if he pushing can't, back, why are we believing this? Yeah, pushing back from it then in the sense of, well, I'm okay with the fact that God's mysterious and I don't understand his ways or pushing back and against it saying this whole God thing, you know, not for me. What do you mean by pushing back? Well, I think I think people have done both. So, I mean, I don't know how many of your listeners, for example, have been listening to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, which is- oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, a lot of us who grew up in these very controlling and misogynistic churches are are hearing a lot of things in this that we're like, oh, yeah, I grew up with that. It was really bad. <laughs> there are people who've just walked away from it, but then there are people who are more like me who say, no, actually, God is beautiful and the person of Christ is compelling. And this was a messed up thing. Um, but just because it was a messed up thing doesn't mean that God is not beautiful and that Christ is not compelling. We've just got to find our way forward from there. So I guess when, when, when I hear this, I'm just going to go back to my Abraham example. Cause I guess that's the one that hits closest to home for me when I hear it, which I hear a lot, a parent say, how do you tell my child that Abraham ever worshiped a God other than God? I want to say God works in history History is imperfect and incomplete and obscure. If you believe in God, how about you just take a breath, chill out and wait to see what God is going to do? Because if you really think that your child's faith and the future of your child in the faith depends on your child believing that Abraham never had a doubt 
and never went astray and never worshiped any other God, then you are looking at a long, hard road for your family. Well, and what an impossible faith too, because if Abraham were perfect, if Moses had never killed an Egyptian, Mm -hmm. right? If we look back at that and say, oh, he never did a single thing wrong. Well, that that actually removes any hope I have for myself that I could become more like the faith, more like Christ or sanctified, right? It's just, um, it's because they're human that we can keep going and say, oh, they messed up and God did something with them. Well, how about that? That's, that's good news. I'll take that. Yeah. Yep. They messed up. And, and, you know, I don't want to get too off the topic of history, but, you know, I just, I, I, I have been, I have been, I've been trying to return to some of the sermons and such that I listened to when I was a kid, just to sort this out in my head and the refusal to recognize history, what actually happened leads to just such horrible distortions. I mean, I just listened to this sermon about how, when Abraham Um, when Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham and said, go and have children by her, that Abraham was a godly man. So clearly Hagar was an app, an opportunist. And the, the, the parallel that was drawn was to a gold digging young woman who finds a rich older man and latches onto him in order to get financial security. Okay. And I was, I, I I just, I was, I was actually feeding the lambs this morning because I'm on a farm here. And listening to this sermon and like yelling out loud at the top of my lungs, she was a slave. She was a victim. She had no choice. She was not given an option here. But in this zeal to protect this picture of Abraham, you know, this preacher who's working on the same um, same sort of you know model as these parents who object to the fact that I said that he worshiped the moon god, wanted to make Abraham the hero of faith. And so turned this slave into an opportunist instead of a victim. The distortion just continues to ripple out. If you can't actually look at history with clear eyes. Hmm. That's a brilliant point. So then Susan, in keeping with the idea of distortion and critics and that you're doing something innovative with the story that you're telling, if you could get your critics in a room. Cause I, you know, I, I know that you have them because we all have them. Anybody doing something different is going to have critics. Um, what do you wish they understood about you or wish you could say to them? Well, I, it's really important for people to recognize that, Oh, this is, oh, this is so hard to get across to people. All history is a story mm-hmm. and every story tells part of what's happening and not the whole thing. If you tell everything that's happening simultaneously, you don't have a story, you have an encyclopedia (laughs) and and you don't have a way to hold it in your mind and make sense of it. So every historian makes choices of what to include and what to leave out. And what you should do if you're reading a history is read that story, think about whether or not it makes sense to you. Sure, analyze whether or not the historian is making good use of the sources they have, but the most infuriating things that you get from a critic, and I've had more than my share of these kind of reviews is, well, I started to read this book. Here's why I didn't like it. It's because it wasn't this other book that I would have written if I had had the chance. <laughs> uh-huh. It's the worst kind of review ever. And and I've gotten those from the story of the, from the, story of the world, um, you know, well, what I was really hoping for was a biblical history. Yeah, that's not really why I wrote it. Um, The History of the World series, I've had 
yes, but she didn't pay attention to all the great cultural developments. I'm like, but that's, it's already 800 pages long. That's not the story <laughs> that I was yeah. telling. So, you know, when you, when you, that's what I would say to my critics is read the book that I wrote, not the book that you wish I'd written. Or the book that someday you should write because you really yes. have an opinion about this. Or the book that this other person over here wrote that mm-hmm. you should go review that one. So, you know, it's important to take a history. <laughs> and I've, I try in my history books to lay out, here's what I'm doing. Here's why I'm doing it. Take it on its own terms. Criticize it on its own terms. You know, just don't criticize a zebra for not being a gazelle. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things um, I really appreciate about this conversation too, is that we're talking about history, not as a curriculum per se, not doesn't have to remain within that box, but it's something that we all should be knowing and listening to when we're out running errands. Right? Oh, yeah. That's when I listened to your um, history of the world was just car schooling myself, driving places and getting little snippets of it here and there to think about. It was great. Um, and so for folks listening who might be saying, yes, but I already have my history curriculum for the year. I just don't want them to feel limited that, that what we're talking about today really actually should challenge that idea that um, whether or not your kids are homeschooled, whether or not you even have kids, uh, this is a really great resource to turn to just to say, I think I want to know more about people. Um, so can you talk to me more as, as we've been talking off and on about the homeschool world a little bit, um, You've been in the homeschool world for some time now. What, what <laughs> is say. that? What is that world like? Because uh, how have you seen one of the one of my goals is to sort of um, capture the legacy of homeschooling through the series of podcasts that I do. So, you've what have you seen in homeschooling? How has it changed over the last few decades? Are there things you're excited about, or cautious, or concerned? Where would you go with that? Well, oh golly, that's this is, we could do a whole other podcast, and we could um, do only okay three minutes. How about that? Yeah, let me let me try let me try to give you like a three minute. Um, so when I was being homeschooled myself in the seventies and the eighties, um, there wasn't a quote unquote homeschooling movement as such that really mm-hmm. got going in the nineties, and homeschooling, which was an option to get your kid educated, became a cultural and political force. Mm-hmm. And I think it is on the one hand um, healthy to see that 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 has fragmented. Um, when I was when I was speaking at homeschool conferences in in the nineties and and the, the early two thousands, which I did a lot of, um, there was every conference that I spoke at keynote speakers who are all about, if you don't homeschool your kids, you're turning them over to pagan forces to be destroyed, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I I know we've all heard this rhetoric, but it was so pervasive. Um, That, that sort of, (laughs) that sort of sense of emergency can't really be maintained over the long term. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. at some point people are like, I just want to teach this kid how to read and do math. Please help me. Mm -hmm. So that kind of burned itself out in one way, but as movements do it, it, it maintained a very strong place in a certain segment of homeschooling and particularly in big homeschooling conferences where now when you go to them, you're not being told how to teach your kids. You're being told how to parent your kids and how to Mm. quote unquote, keep them safe and how to, um, you know, how to make sure that they think properly, which unfortunately seems to mean making them very politically conservative. Mm. 
And there's a real breach now between that branch of homeschooling and people who are just like, please let me teach my kid. Help me with my kid. I don't yeah. know what to do with my kid. And I see that the, the massive um, gulf between those two ways of thinking about homeschooling as a major problem that the quote unquote homeschool conferences have now pretty much been co-opted by the homeschooling as culture wars. Whereas the parents who are just trying to figure out how to make their kids be okay are left piecing together um, from a lot of different sources, what it is that they're going to do. And I would love to see a more organized approach to the parents who just, maybe they're going to homeschool for one year. Maybe, maybe they're going to homeschool for two years. Maybe they just need some help to get through the next season. Mm -hmm. And I'm very frustrated by the lack of connection between those two branches of homeschooling. But you know what, Anne, like American political life, I don't see them rejoining at any point in the future. Yeah. And um, I don't know if they, if they need to, like I'm sitting here thinking as you're talking about the two separate, I think one of the things I value about homeschooling as a parent is that I can teach what's important to my family, my history, my heritage to my children, and then they get to do whatever they want with it. Um, Cause let's be honest, if homeschooling brainwashed kids, uh, all parents would be signing up to homeschool their kids, right? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It doesn't uh, work we, that way. Wish we could, but it just doesn't. So that there are um, all different perspectives and opening it up to that saying, you know what? I think a Muslim family should homeschool their kids and talk mm -hmm. about what they believe in. I think that's really important, mm -hmm. um, which offends, you know, however many percentage of people listening to this podcast. But if I want my faith to be respected and given space to grow in my own home with my kids as we're learning together, I should be able to respect that with everybody else's faith. And so that's why I say I, I can like your two camps. Like I, I hope they continue to exist because it would be awful if homeschooling only belonged to a certain religion. That's not the goal of it. The goal is to invite families together, to do life, to learn together, to, to raise up kids who are citizens with virtue that we can, you know, that are going to carry us into the next generation. Yeah, I guess I know. And, and you're absolutely right, Anne, and that that is very well put. I would just like to see some way that the, those two um, streams could <laughs> mingle a little tiny bit. Oh yeah. Respect each other, not fight. Yeah. I, I'd, yeah. I'd appreciate more. Talk to each other. And I haven't, I haven't seen much of that so far. Correct. Hopefully that will change with time. Hopefully in 20 years, someone will listen to this and say, Oh wow. Yeah. Never. No. Oh yes. That like was that. a weird time. Wasn't it? <laughs> it should be that so would be great. That would be great. Okay. Well, I know we're, we're starting to run out of time here, so we'll wrap up. But bef um, before I take you into the last question, I do want to sort of, um, cap on this image of community that we're talking about with homeschooling and that, especially for our friend listening, that whether you're new to homeschooling or been doing it for years to really still get involved in the homeschool community and find your place, right? Yeah. There are homeschool families who want to do life like you do life. There are play groups and co-ops and um, all kinds of group resources that are going to enrich your learning experience. I'm sure Susan, you could even reference some that are off of the mainstream that you've seen that families have have really been helped by, right? Well, I, I mean, I, I've seen so many more families piecing together really robust, fascinating educations using 
um, a class from a charter school here and a class from an online academy there mm-hmm. and a tutor here. And so what I would encourage parents to do is if there is reach out to reach out to anyone, you know, who's homeschooling, but anyone who says to you, oh, well, you're not really homeschooling because you're doing X <laughs> walk away from them and don't talk to them anymore because you don't need that voice in your head. You, and, and you know what I'm talking about, Anne, right? There. I do. Oh, yes. I do. Yeah. You will, you will, you will be loaded with criticism if you use X resource or you use an online class or you use a charter school or you use the public school for athletics. You, anyone who um, criticizes or condemns you and says, you're not really a homeschooler because of what you're doing, put your fingers in your ears and go la 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 and keep doing what's for your family and go and find the people who are piecing it together the way we all should be in a way that works for them. Well, going back to the beginning with the story of your mom too, what if she had listened to the teachers saying, well, you have these willful children, they just need to be disciplined more Mm -hmm. uh, rather than giving like bars instead of wings that she gave you to take off because she was willing to think outside the box. And so that's what we're encouraging parents to continue to do is, um, don't limit yourself unnecessarily, right? Look at your child. What does your child need? What does your family need? What can you afford to do? And, and start there, right? And, and you have my permission to not associate with people who make you feel guilty about what you're doing. <laughs> Susan has declared it. I hope you I have declared it. <laughs> Just walk away. <laughs> Just walk away. That's good. Um, Yeah. And I'll throw out at this point too, just because we've got uh, some new listeners who've been hopping on recently, like our goal, I know Susan with the well-trained mind um, resources and curriculum, she's got all these great forums up that you can participate in. Our goal is to bring homeschoolers together to begin to talk and learn from each other and homeschool expert. One of the things we've done is take the experiences of hundreds of veteran successful homeschool parents and put them all into one place Mm -hmm. so that when somebody's starting out and they go, Oh my gosh, I don't know how to homeschool. I guess I should figure it out myself. No, no, please don't figure it out yourself. Somebody's been there before. Uh Uh-huh. Please don't do that. Please start with what, what we've done, what we've learned and seen, and then modify from there to whatever it is you need it to be. Um, But we, I don't know if I told you this, Susan, we started giving away our whole video series. We used to charge for it and we recently just decided we're just going to give it away. Oh, uh, so hopefully listeners will, will pick it up and, and well, learn I, tricks about how to homeschool. If I could also put in a plug for our forums, which is forums.welltrainedmind.com. Those are also free. We have so many thousands and thousands and thousands of parents yep. and we have never I'm, you know, we, we, we knock out people who are selling stuff um, and scammers and such, but we do not edit content. So on our forums, you will find people who are like, well-trained mind, classical education, best thing ever. And then you will find thousands more parents are like, yeah, that didn't work for me. And (laughs) we, (laughs) I'm like, okay, we, we don't edit that. We don't in any way constrain the conversation. There are so many different ways to do this. So hop on there and see if you can find some kindred spirits. I'm so glad you mentioned it. Yeah, it's real life. It looks different wherever you go. Okay. So, well, then wrapping this up, Susan, this has been fun, but is there anything that you want parents to know either about your resources or homeschooling or life itself? Take us on, take us on a ride. (laughs) (laughs) Lambs, how to feed lambs. (laughs) How to feed lambs. I know that's what I'm going to go do next. Um, Yeah. It's living time here on the farm and we have, we have a few bottle babies whose mothers were like, yeah, I don't know what that is. I never saw it before. So (laughs) we are the, Now we are the mamas. Um, Don't panic. 
I'm sorry, I've just got to quote the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> that is, that really is, I mean, looking back, and, and I, I think I've said this in so many interviews that people have heard me before are going to start rolling their eyes. But like decisions that you make out of fear of what might happen, as opposed to decisions that you make about what is going to work for your family right now in this season. Those are the right decisions. The ones that you make out of fear about what might happen, they won't get into college, they won't get a job, they're going to become sculptors and never be able to support themselves, whatever it is. Those are almost always the wrong decisions. Um, I can tell you looking back from, I mean, and I'm sure I've got a lot more history to go, but you know, I've got four adult kids right now and I can look back and tell you that when I made a decision about what I was going to do with them based on fear of what might happen, it was almost always the wrong decision. Hmm. Whereas when I looked at this kid face to face and said, what do you want to do now? And thought to myself, what is going to be good for this kid now? Those were the right decisions. The world is changing so fast and in such inexplicable and unexpected ways. Yeah. That to make decisions about your kid's education, particularly if you've got elementary and middle school kids, based on what you think might happen in the future, is going to lead you astray. Look at that kid now. What is going to make that kid flourish this year? Hmm. Put away the fear, because I got to tell you, people, you're a parent. You're always going to be afraid. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, that's good. Um Put away the fear and make a decision based on what is going to help that child flourish now and then look at it again next year and try not to panic. <laughs> That's excellent advice. Yeah. Try not to panic. We'll, we'll do that. That sounds good. Well, Susan, thank you again for joining me on this podcast. As always, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you and to hear about lambs and learn about the history behind your series. Uh, the history of the world and the story of the world. I hope people will truly check it out. Thank you. If you want to see pictures of lambs, if you follow me on my personal social media uh, channels, which is just Susan Weisbauer on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, you will see lots of pictures of goat and sheep babies. Oh, good. That sounds like the perfect thing to do in spring. I love it. Very nice. Alrighty. And thank you too, friend, for joining us today. I hope you're walking away from this conversation feeling more equipped to teach the ones you love. See you next time. Thanks for joining Ann Crossman on our podcast helping you homeschool confidently with help from the experts. You can do this, and we are here to help. We invite you to follow us on social media and subscribe to our podcast so you stay up to date on the latest resources. See you next time.